Acts chapter 4. We're going to study down through verse 14 today, but we're going to just read verses 1 through 4 uh, to begin our study in this new chapter of the book of Acts. And as we do every Sunday, please read together and aloud. Verse 1. Now, as they spoke to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. However, many of those who heard the word believed. And the number of the men came to be about 5,000. Shall we pray? Our Father and our God, we thank you and we bless you for this day, this precious day, this glorious day that you have made. May we rejoice and be glad in it, especially now that we have your word before us. We pray that you will anoint us and bless us with your spirit. Grant us, God, your wisdom and your grace as we desire to grow more and more in your knowledge. And that, Lord, we would have even a greater desire in our hearts to be those who have been with Jesus on a daily basis. To know your very heart. And, Lord, to respond to you as you lead us and guide us through the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray this morning, uh, and I I lift up uh, some fellow chaplains of mine in the police department, Sam Ferroni, who was in a uh, mishap not too many weeks ago and is still recovering from that uh, for Essex Hands and uh, Bill Mitchell, who are both uh, uh, facing and dealing with uh, cancer today. I lift them up to you. I pray, Father, for your, your healing to come upon them today. Restore them, Lord God, that they may continue doing, Lord, that which you've called them to do, not only as pastors, but as as, uh, chaplains as well. But we we thank you so much, Lord God, because you are the one that heals. You are the one that brings strength and life, Lord, uh, to our bodies and and keeps us, Lord, from those things that, uh, Lord, the enemy seeks to do in destroying us. But, Lord, greater are you that is in us than he that is in this world. And we rejoice in you, Lord God, for giving us the opportunity to come before your throne of grace, to lay these petitions down, and others, I'm sure, that many may have today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You all may be seated. J. Vernon McGee shared a story about an incident that took place while he was a pastor of a church in the middle of downtown Los Angeles many, many years ago. He was called by a woman and asked to serve on a committee that was trying to clean up that area of downtown L.A. He agreed with her that it needed cleaning up, but told her he wouldn't serve on that committee. When she questioned him in amazement, Aren't you a minister? Aren't you interested in cleaning up Los Angeles? McGee answered her and said, I I will not serve on your committee because I don't think you're going about it the right way. 
He then told her about, uh, uh, he told her what another preacher had told him many, many years earlier in his life. He said, we are called to fish in the fish pond, not to clean up the fish pond. Now, McGee explains, and he says, this old world is a place to fish. Jesus said he would make us fishers of men, and the world is the place to fish. We are not called upon to clean up the fish pond. We need to catch the fish and get the fish cleaned up. Now, he went on to say that the biggest enemies, as he's speaking of this particular issue, he went on to say that the biggest enemies of the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ were not the drunks on the street or the gangsters that he dealt with on a daily basis in, in that community, but he, and I quote, he calls them the so-called religious leaders who are the greatest enemies of the preaching of the gospel. The so-called religious leaders, the liberals, those who claimed to be born again. Strong words, but then he added something even stronger. He said, the Sadducees of today, who deny the supernatural. They deny the word of God either by their lips or by their lives. He called these liberals Sadducees. And as we had read and studied in the previous chapter, Peter and John had gone to the temple to pray when they ran into this lame man who was sitting there at this gate called Beautiful, one who had been so since birth, a lame man. But this man got healed, which, which drew the crowds to see what had happened. And, and Peter used the opportunity to preach to the people about Jesus, the one whose power had healed this man. And while many of the people who knew this man were filled with wonder and amazement over what had taken place, there were others who weren't so amazed. And this led to the first occurrence in the book of Acts of persecution directed toward the church of Jesus Christ. But consider, if you will, who seemed to miss the obvious in their midst. And realize this, there was something very obvious in, 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 in this place and that had taken place there in the temple. Something so obvious, but they missed it. And who was it that missed it? As we look at our text once again, it says in verse 1, Now as they spoke to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them. Being greatly disturbed that they taught the people, in other words, that Peter and John taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. So it is interesting that the man who was healed had yet to say a word. Up to this point he hasn't said a thing. And yet, in effect, he could not be silenced. Why? Because of what Jesus had done to his body. What Jesus had done in healing his whole complete body from uh, this malady that he had had for all of his life where he may have had twisted ankles and twisted legs and twisted toes. Everything was made straight, and he didn't even have to learn how to walk. When he, was, when he was stood up by Peter, he started walking and leaping and praising God. A definite miracle had taken place. Something that only God Himself could do. Something that only Christ Himself would be able to, to, to uh, perform and accomplish in anyone's life. But his healing was an undeniable fact that was confirmed by the many who had known him for so long as they could remember as the, the lame beggar at the 
beautiful gate. But all of this was being ignored, you see. Here was the obvious. I read about it this way. Somebody said that this, this lame man was that 800-pound gorilla in the midst. How do you miss an 800-pound gorilla? You can't. Unless you're just completely blind. And you can't smell. <laughs> but here he was. A, 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 it was an undeniable fact that this man was healed. But this fact was ignored by the priest, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees. In essence, they were ignoring a miraculously changed life. Not just a changed body, but a changed life. But then again, they didn't believe in miracles or in the supernatural. And I'm talking specifically about the Sadducees. The sad part about this whole thing is that most of the people that were involved in the temple at that particular time were probably Sadducees as well. Therefore, even the priests, even the temple guards, even the captain of the temple was probably a Sadducee. Now, this is how true Christianity gets under the skin of the liberal religiosity of today. Because we who believe in the Bible, we who believe in the Word of God, believe that God is able to do these things. We believe that God can still to this day do miracles. We believe that God can do great and wondrous and awesome things. And it gets under the skin of those who, who say, well, no, no, they just, you know, they just cannot be. It's just not right. It, just, it doesn't fit with natural science as if science came before the Lord. There can be no science because God created everything. He came before science. But you see, the priests, the priests were angered that Peter and John were teaching the people. So everybody had a gripe with Peter and John. The priests were angered that Peter and John were teaching the people. The captain of the temple, the leader of the temple police force, by the way, they were the same ones who came to arrest Jesus in the garden. The leader of the temple police force was angered because uh, such a large crowd had gathered and the last thing they wanted to do was have to deal with, with crowd control. And of course the Sadducees would be angered that the focal point of the teaching of Peter and John was something that they denied uh, vociferously. They denied determinately. The resurrection from the dead, that's what they denied. They didn't believe it. You see, the Sadducees only believed in part of, what the, in part of the Scriptures. In other words, they only kind of concerned themselves with the first five books of, of the Hebrew Scriptures. That is what is called the Torah. Uh, another word is called the Pentateuch, the first five books. It's called the first five books of Moses. I don't know how they get around, uh, you know, the fact that uh, there are some miracles in the first five books. It's probably because there are less miracles in the first five books than, than in all the rest of the scriptures. But in any event, you know, they, they concerned themselves with only those books and anything outside of that they didn't. So they didn't believe in the resurrection from the dead. But every time that Peter had preached up to this point, he mentioned the resurrection of Jesus. Every time Peter opened his mouth when it came to taking the opportunity that was given to him in the temple, as we've seen these last two times in chapter 2 and chapter 3, each time he mentions the resurrection from the dead. Acts chapter 2, verses 23 and 24, 
Speaking of Jesus, he says, Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up. So he mentions the resurrection. Whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. Later on in the same chapter, Acts chapter 2, verse 31, he says, He foreseeing this now, he's speaking of David, for he quotes from the book of Psalms, and he speaks of David when he says, He foreseeing this spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. So now he not only mentions the resurrection, but he says, but we've seen him. We are eyewitnesses of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We have not only seen him, we've even touched him. In Acts chapter 3, when Peter takes the opportunity, when people are gathered together because of seeing this, this lame man now walking and leaping and praising God, he says in Acts 3 verse 14, But you denied the Holy One and the just, and asked for a murder to be granted to you, and killed the Prince of Life, whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. So many times in these two sermons of his, he mentions the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But the Sadducees, and we need to come to an understanding of who these Sadducees were, why they believed what they, what they did, or why they didn't believe the things of the Scriptures. The Sadducees were the ruling sect uh, within Ju- Judaism at that time. They were the liberal group, though. You see, there was a, another group that was very much uh, believers in the, in, in the Hebrew Scriptures. That was the group called the Pharisees. We, 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 you know, yet they were also in opposition to Jesus when Jesus was, was, was doing his earthly ministry. But nonetheless, the, the Sadducees were even more liberal in a sense. I mean, they, 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 they'd gone to the point where they didn't believe a lot of what the Scripture had to say, or the Scriptures had to say. But they were the ruling sect, mostly because of, of wealth and position. But as the liberal group of, 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 of the sects of Judaism of the time, they didn't believe in things like angels, they didn't believe in the afterlife, and they held rather loosely only to the Torah. As I said, the first five books of the Hebrew Scriptures, which is why they disregarded the references that Peter made from the book of Psalms to validate and to verify the resurrection of Jesus. And because of their wealth and their influence, they had Peter and John arrested, more than likely due to the fact that it wasn't convenient to assemble the council for a hearing at night, which is interesting because they did everything they could to have a a hearing at night for Jesus. But they wouldn't be bothered with, with Peter and John until morning. And so they said, well, just incarcerate them. Just hold them, bind them, and just we'll wait till the morning. They're just a nuisance to us. But there was another problem. The problem that the Sadducees had, the problem that the priests had, the problem that the temple guard had, and the problem was this. They couldn't keep a multitude from believing what Peter and John preached. They couldn't keep the multitude from believing. Look at verse 4. It says, However, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. Now, there are those who who try to do different types of, uh, of adjustments with the math here, you know. 
There had been 3,000 or so saved at the, at the first uh, uh, presentation of the gospel in the temple. Now, some would say that uh, the, the number came up to 5,000, which would mean that there were about 2,000 men. But more specifically, Luke is actually saying the number of the men came to be about 5,000. And, and, and I believe that there is, there is this, this uh, understanding that he's talking about that incident there which would actually add up the scroll there to about uh, uh, 8,000 then, if you add the 3,000 and the 5. But then then you have to do the other math, which is that he only counts the men, so there's 5,000 men. That doesn't include other like uh, family members, wives that were waiting on the side who were listening and also believing. So uh, some great thing was happening there in the temple. And all of this in spite of the opposition. Despite the opposition that came against the preaching of the gospel, the numbers of believers in Christ continued to increase. And so growing from 3,000 at last count to 5,000 or even to 8,000. And like I said, it's interesting that Luke mentions the number of men because... We find in, in, the, in the Gospels when Jesus was multiplying the loaves and the fishes that when they counted out how many, how many people had received from Jesus handing out the loaves and the fishes, it says 5,000 men, which didn't include all of the family members. So it was upwards of 12,000 people that got fed, counting wives and children that got fed by Jesus. So this gives us a little bit of an idea of how, how large this, this number could be that has come now to Christ in, 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 after two messages given of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So it all applies here. No matter what the number, whether it was 3,000, 5,000, 8,000, no matter what the number, God was working and God was moving powerfully among the church, even in the midst of persecution. And let me say that it all started, it all started with one. It all started with the layman who was healed. It started with the layman. It only starts with one. We oftentimes wonder, how can I best reach people? How can I best reach people for the gospel of Jesus Christ? Should I try to gather as many people together? What about just telling one person? What about bringing the gospel to that one person who may, in effect, go on and tell others about Jesus Christ? Has that not happened in, in this day and time in which we live? We can go all the way back to some great people in the, in, in, in the history of the church. In the last maybe 120, 30 years, a person named Charles Spurgeon who found himself in London wanting to go to a church and, and uh, because of a snowstorm ended up on the wrong street and went into a little primitive Methodist church there. That's what they called him, the primitive Methodist. And he gets in there. There's only a few people in there. The preacher's not even there because of the snowstorm. And, and some man gets up and he preaches one verse of Scripture. And Spurgeon gets saved. After Spurgeon comes to Christ, of course, he becomes a great preacher. Not immediately, but down, down the ways in time, he becomes this great preacher who, who brought thousands of, upon thousands of people to the Lord. It began in a church, one little church where there were just a couple of people in there. But God spoke to his heart. And so you can say from that little church came this tremendous revival of souls that came to Christ. It all begins with one. 
And here it began with this one lame man who was touched, not only physically, but spiritually. Because when he was raised up from that place at the gate, beautiful, he started walking and leaping and praising God. And people saw this and they wondered with amazement, what has happened here? It just takes one work of God for the fire to spread. But let me make one quick observation about persecution. I don't want to get beyond this thought here today. But Christians in the Western world, particularly in North America, rarely face persecution like many Christians do in other parts of the world. The enemy instead launches attacks toward us in various other ways. Worldliness, prideful selfishness, desires for acceptance, and even status and position. These are weapons that the enemy uses against the church today. You know, those who actually and really died for their faith in Christ have impressed many an unbeliever with their courage and their faith. The same cannot be said of a self-centered, compromising Christianity. And I think we need to take that to heart today. We have been given something in God's Word to encourage us not to look at the world, nor the things of the world, but to look unto Jesus Christ and Him alone for our wisdom, our strength, His Word, for our guide, our light, His Word being a a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. And if we combat anything, we need to combat that, that desire to move toward the world. John, in his first letter to the church, in 1 John 2, verse 15, says, Do not love the world. Do not love the world. That, you know, this, this transcends all of time and it transcends all of geography. This word comes directly to us and says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, is not of the Father but is of the world. And the world is passing away and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. He who does the will of God abides forever. The world blinds us to these things. The enemy blinds us to the things of God. Where all of the things around us become more important than the Lord and there's something wrong with that. No, we may not be under the gun as it were as as, as in some places of the world. But the enemy is doing everything he can to destroy our witness for Christ. It's time that the church wakes up and says, I will not love this world. I will not love the world or the things in the world. We can be thankful for what God has given to us, what God has blessed us with. But may everything that we have, may we, may we give it back unto God. May we give it back to Him in service. May we give it back to Him and use it all for His glory and not for our own. But persecution is real, folks. And it's real to us too here if we stay focused on the, on the love of the Lord and, and tell people about Jesus time and time again, we are going to face opposition to that. Because the minds of men have been so polluted and so corrupted by the things of this world, by secular humanism and, and by the philosophies of this world. And even by the educational intellectual systems of this world. To downgrade the things of God, to downgrade God's word. But as we'll learn in just a moment, 
It isn't for us just, you know, unless God has called us to be like men like Ravi Zacharias who can go into college campuses today and preach the gospel as he does in, in, in many cases. But he's called us to be who we are. And if God could take simple fishermen like Peter and John and turn the whole temple of Jerusalem upside down, he can do the same with you and with me. And there's one reason for that. If we know and love the Word of God, that Word of God will never be bound. The Word of God is never bound. You see, we were told in verse 3 that they went and they laid hands on Peter and John, and I can assure you they didn't lay hands on them to pray for them. It tells us they laid hands on them to arrest them. There's two kinds of laying on of hands in the Scriptures. One, one is, is, is you know, indicative of, of, of laying hands to pray for people, but another one is to take them and, and, and you know, put them into prison, bind them. You know, They said, well, let's keep them here, because here they'll be silent. They won't affect anybody else. But the Word of God is never bound, you see. The apostles may have been bound, but the Word of God is never bound. Consider, if you will, the last two verses of the book of Acts in the life of Paul. The very last two verses of this whole book, it says in verses 30 and 31 of Acts 28, that Paul dwelt two whole years in his own rented house and received all who came to him. That sounds pretty nice until you realize that he was under house arrest. And it says he dwelt two whole years in his own rented house and received all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no one forbidding him. Why? Because you can't bind the word of God. And then in a letter to the Philippian church, he talks about his own chains. He talks about how he is, himself is chained, but God is, God's word is not. In Philippians 1 verse 12, he says, I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel, so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And, and most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word Without fear. And, and you know what? It, those, those Roman guards that had to be changed 24 hours to the Apostle Paul, they were the prisoners. They couldn't escape Paul. And what was Paul going to do? He wasn't going to talk about the weather. He was going to talk about Jesus. And most of the guards that were chained to Paul became Christians. They were like, I can't get away from this guy. Hey, well, that's, that's your problem. They would get saved. Whole households would get saved. Because you see, God's word is not bound. You can bind the, the apostle, you can bind the Christian, you can bind the evangelist, but you cannot bind God's word. Paul's bonds, instead of hindering his outreach, resulted in a greater spreading of the gospel of Christ. <clears throat> and Paul even knew that there were those who talked about him and, and, and you know, they, you know, they, they minimized his own ministry and all. And he says, you know what, if they're preaching the gospel of Christ, hey... The gospel's still going out. He says, I rejoice in that. They'll just keep, even if it was being preached in pretense, he says, well, the gospel's being preached. They couldn't bind it. <laughs> Look at the effect that it had with Peter and John before they arrested him. Anywhere from, you know, two to five, a thousand men were saved. What happens after this is, is of, of great importance to us as well. Look at verse 5. It says, And it came to pass on the next day that their rulers, elders, and scribes, as well as Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and as many were of the family of the high priest, 
were gathered together in Jerusalem. Now, this list that we're given here is the list of, of those that are called the, 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 the council members of the Sanhedrin. This was the Sanhedrin council. Verse 7 says, And when they had set them in their midst, or in the midst, in other words, they brought Peter and John into the midst of the council, they asked, By what power, by what name have you done this? So these were the rulers who had recently condemned Jesus to the cross. That's why Annas' name is mentioned, and Caiaphas as well. These were the same ones who sent Jesus to the cross. Peter and John may have thought that Jesus' trial was about to happen again. And the results would be the same. They would be crucified just like their master. Because they're before the same people who, who, who wanted Jesus to die. But there was a tremendous difference here now. A tremendous difference because back when Jesus was arrested and stood before the council, where was Peter and John? Or where were Peter and John? Peter, we, sure, we certainly know where Peter was. He was outside, you know, kind of trying to check things out. And when he was confronted with who he was, he, he denied the whole thing. He denied Jesus three times. We don't see John again until we, we see him at the cross with Mary. But they had all scattered. Where were they? Fear had set in, but not today. On this day when they stand before the Sanhedrin and before the Sadducees, because most of these Sanhedrin were Sadducees. But it didn't seem to matter to Peter and John that the Sadducees' intimidation tactics were once again being used. Now they're intimidating Peter and John here. Some of them may have been thinking some of these thoughts. Well, here we have a couple of simple, ignorant fishermen. Let's find out what kind of an argument they can give us for a laugh. By what power, by what name have you done this? Let's see what they say. Well, they were about to find out. Their question to Peter is significant because the idea behind the two phrases that they mention, by what power and by what name, are essentially the same because in their thinking, the power resided in the name, since the name represented the character of the person. So when they ask, by what power or by what name have you done this, they're really asking the same question. Because the power was in the name. Remember in Acts chapter 3, Verse 6, when, when, when Peter and, uh, you know, and John are coming into the temple to pray, and they come upon this, this lame man asking for alms, and Peter says to him, Silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you in the name, in the name and the power and the authority of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. In that one word name, or in that one... Uh, word itself is the power, it is the authority... It is everything that was needed that day for that man to stand up whole as he did. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Is it any wonder, and I think about where we are today with the name of Jesus Christ, is it any wonder that people take and use the name of Jesus in vain, in, in effect rendering it powerless due to their unbelief, and we as believers in Christ need to guard against this. We need a guard against how we use the name of Jesus Christ. There's power in the name of Jesus. 
His name is indeed powerful, and we must never forget that. But how many people today, and of course unbelievers, you know, use the name of Jesus like a cuss word? We have to be careful. It is a precious name. And to be distinct, you know, actually from, from the Jewish faith and the fact that they, they, they find it, you know, a, a reverent thing to even uh, mention the name of God. And they, they don't. We've been given the name of Jesus to use. To pray in the name of Jesus. To depend upon the name of Jesus. Not to use it flippantly. Not to use it worthlessly. It is a precious name. How many testimonies could there be in this room of times of great struggle or trial and, and, and wondering where's the answer and, and, and yet with a, with a sincere heart we said, Oh Lord Jesus, help me. And He does. How many times? Because we've called upon the name that is above every name. His name is powerful and we must never forget that. And Peter will soon tell us why. Look at verse, uh, verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, and I want to tell you, he said this, in re- he said this with a lot of respect to these people. He said, rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well, Let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. No other name under heaven. Take first of all, uh, take note of the words in verse 8. It says that Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. Filled with the Holy Spirit to say that very thing that he says here, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, filled by the Holy Spirit to preach the name of Jesus Christ. You see, this is a very significant thing for our day and our time because there are those people today who say, listen, we want church growth. We want to do things certain ways. You know, we're going to go to all these conferences. They're going to tell us how we can get a lot of people in our churches. And one of the things that they kind of count on is don't mention the name of Jesus too much. I mean, you want to make people feel comfortable to come in and sit down and, you know, we'll give them all kinds of plays and all kinds of, you know, things that they, you know, entertain them with, with wonderfully, you know, professional musicians. And we'll put up sets and, and just attract them by all of these things. But, you know, let, we'll give them the name of Jesus later. No, you give them the name of Jesus now. There's no other name but the name of Jesus Christ. I'm sorry, I'm hurting myself hitting this thing. But there's no other name. What are we waiting for? No other name. 
Under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And we have people coming in because we just want them to come in to be dead bodies before us. We need to be alive in Christ. And the only way that we've come to life in Christ is because we have trusted in the name of Jesus Christ. No other way. Filled with the Spirit to preach the name of Jesus, the source of Peter's answer would come from being filled with the Holy Spirit. This will always make it an unfair fight for everybody else. Because we're filled with the Spirit. And I'm sure Peter remembered the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 10, verses 19 and 20, when he says, But when they deliver you up, do not worry about how or what you should speak, for it will be given to you in that hour what you should speak. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. I mean, he remembered this. And how many times, you know, should we not remember this when we share the wonderful news of Jesus Christ, when we tell people about the Lord, sometimes we just begin to speak and God gives us wisdom and grace. But let me tell you this, He gives it to us because we've already been in His Word. We've, took it, we've taken it in. And if anybody knows what's in our hearts and in our minds... God does, and He knows where to get it, too. I don't know how my brain works. I'm, I'm sorry. Don't, you know, don't laugh at me. About it. I don't know how the brain works. Does anybody know how the brain works? We don't. That's, a, that's quite a mystery. You know, all this gray matter and stuff. But somehow, you know, there's all these millions and millions of cells, billions, and, you know, just everything's working. God has worked this out. But God knows every molecule where, where we store His Word. And when it needs to come out, it comes out. Why? Because He knows. If we trust Him, we'll begin to say things that we never even thought. You know, but it was there because you read the Word. That's why I tell you, stay in God's Word. Read God's Word and pray when you read God's Word. And then read God's Word more. And then pray more. Why? So that you will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. So when the time comes for you to give an answer to every man who asks it, of the hope that lies within you, you can speak boldly because of the Spirit that is within you. And you will speak the name of Jesus, you see. I mean, this is supernatural boldness, isn't it, that we see in Peter? Supernatural boldness, the capacity to speak to the very heart of the issue, which gives evidence of Peter being filled with the Spirit again. It is something that the Lord wants to keep doing in our lives as well. Being continually being filled with the Spirit so that we might speak the wondrous things of God. It was God's powerful presence in Peter in the midst of those unbelieving religious leaders that overflowed in this bold assertion, or I should say bold declaration. And by the way, remember, again, it was Peter who had denied the Lord, but now he stands firm and he stands strong and he gives the message. Notice again, verse 8, Peter filled, Peter filled with the Holy Spirit said to them, Rulers, of the people of the, and, and elders of Israel, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, that is boldness in the face of the Sadducees, boldness in the face of these people who put Jesus on the cross, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, and he reminds them of this a lot, whom God raised from the dead, there's the resurrection, by him this man stands before you whole. It is certain by this statement that the Sanhedrin's intimidation didn't work on Peter. He boldly declared that it was the name of Jesus of Nazareth that the lame man was healed. He even reminded them that they had crucified the Lord and he didn't hesitate to declare that God raised Jesus from the dead. 
Peter also made a comment using a word in verse 9 that he would use again in verse 12. An important word that could get lost in translation. Because in verse 9 he describes the impotent man as being made whole or well. It, it says that the impotent man was made whole in the, in the King James and uh, the, the uh, lame man was, was made well. But that word for whole or well is the word sozo in the Greek. And in verse 12, you read the word saved there. The same word in the Greek, sozo, which means to save, to keep safe and sound, to rescue from danger and destruction. Why is this important? Let's backtrack just a little bit. Peter is asking, by the way, he's asking in effect, are we on trial for a good deed? Are we on trial for a good deed? And then he wants to be perfectly clear that it was Jesus who performed the miracle. And it was Jesus who gave them authority and power to do this work. Certainly those words must have pierced the hearts of this council. They had to have thought that they had finished off the prophet preacher uh, from Nazareth. And now his followers were telling the people that Jesus was alive. They thought they had gotten rid of the problem, but the problem only multiplied with those who were followers of Jesus because now the followers of Jesus, especially those who had seen Jesus alive after His crucifixion, were now bold to proclaim it to everyone that they saw. And because boldness was not enough, and please understand this, boldness is never enough. Peter returns to the Scriptures to prove his teaching. Peter goes back to the Word of God. We can be bold, but we need the Word of God always. And he goes back to the Word of God in verses 11 and 12, and he says, This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Quoting from Psalm 118, verse 22. And then he says in verse 12, Nor is there salvation in any other. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now remember those two words we saw earlier. To be made whole or well. To be saved. The Spirit directed Peter to quote Psalm 118 verse 22, which is a definite messianic reference. It was a definite messianic reference to call him the stone. By the way, the, Sa the Sadducees did not uh, have that interpretation. They, they, they believed a different interpretation of that stone. They thought the stone was Israel. And the, uh, the builders who rejected the stone were the Gentiles. That was their way of thinking. That is why they don't see uh, you know, the, the Messianic references uh, to Jesus uh, here. But Jesus himself used it. He used that same reference in Matthew 21, verse 42, when Jesus says, Have you never read in the Scriptures the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And He's speaking of Himself. And then Peter, who was quoting from Psalm 118, verse 22 here, before the Sanhedrin, later on in his first letter to the church, would write this in 1 Peter 2, verse 4. He says, Coming to Him as, a, as to a living stone... Rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore it is also contained in the scripture, notice, 
Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him. Folks, it's not talking about a nation, it's talking about a person. He who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. And therefore, in verse 7, it says, To you who believe, he is precious, but to those who are disobedient. Now he quotes from Psalm 118, verse 22, and he says, The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble, he says, being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. So what Peter was saying, going back to, to, to Acts 4, Peter was making it clear that those council members were the builders and that they had rejected God's stone. They had rejected the cornerstone. Jesus, the Son of the living God. And then on top of all of that, Peter goes on to explain that Jesus is not only the stone, but He is also the Savior. He is also the Savior. Verse 12. He doesn't merely proclaim Jesus as one of many ways of salvation, but as the only way of salvation. Did you see that? He says, nor is there salvation in any other. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. No other name. Down through the ages, people have tried to put uh, names, you know, uh, to, to salvation in, in, in many others. Some have said Jesus plus. You can't have salvation without Jesus plus something else. And then there have been the other world religions. But when you think about all of these people who have led great movements, where are they today? Each and every one of them is buried. The only one, and the reason why he says there's only one name. It is the name of Jesus because he alone is the one who has risen from the dead. Everyone else, every leader of every world religion is in their grave. Except for those that are still living today, but they might as well be. Unless they come to Christ. But everyone... Buddha in his grave. What about the seven million gods of Hinduism? We're only just idols and, and demons, actually. And the demons of many other religions, where are they? But there's only one name. One name under heaven, you see. The very thought that there is no salvation in any other and that there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved is truly an offensive one in our pluralistic and diverse society today. It is offensive to people. How can you be? You're talking about Jesus. Jesus is the only way. That's, that's, so, that's so, so narrow. Well, yeah, it is. But that's because Jesus said it himself. Think about this. Think about John chapter 3, verse 13 and following. It says, no one, no one has ascended to heaven but he who came down from heaven. That is, the Son of Man who is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That whoever believes in Him, notice, nobody else but in Him who has been lifted up, but whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send His, own, His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. His Son, His only begotten Son, that name... And that name alone, that one person, that one person alone who died for our sins, who suffered for our sins, who paid the penalty through the shedding of his blood so that we might have forgiveness of our sins. That name, that's the only name. 
Peter, uh, I should say, Jesus himself in John 14, 6 says to, to, uh, to his disciples in particular, uh, to one, he says, I am the way. I am the way. The implication here is that there's no other way. I am the way. I'm the only way. I am the only truth. I am the only life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That is what's called a universal negative. No one comes. Not one person will come to the Father except through me. Except through me. Narrow? Well, Jesus talked about two roads. A broad road that leads to destruction and a narrow road that leads to life. I think it's about time we focus on that narrow road. I think it's about time we focus on that one name. Because we need to focus on the one person that came to die for our sins. No one else died for our sins. Jesus alone died for our sins. And this is why Paul says in 1 Timothy 2 verse 5, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. One God and one mediator. Now, Peter saw in the healing of the lame man, a picture of the spiritual healing that comes in salvation. It's getting back to that word, sozo, that we talked about earlier. Peter saw in the healing of the lame man a picture of the spiritual healing that comes in salvation. That is why the phrase made whole in verse 9 is, is a translation of the same Greek word that is translated saved in verse 12. Why? Because salvation means wholeness. And spiritual health. That is what salvation means. Wholeness and spiritual health. When we give our blessing at the end of our services, and, and, it's, and we talk about the shalom that is given, that's, the word shalom means more than just peace. It actually means wholeness and completeness. That you would be filled with the wholeness and completeness of the salvation of Christ. That is your peace. Jesus is your peace. He's your shalom. He's your wholeness. He's your completeness. Paul says that in Colossians, that we are complete in Christ. Salvation means that. Jesus is the great physician who alone can heal man's greatest difficulty, the sickness the sickness of sin. In Mark chapter 2, and I urge you to read uh, everything before verse 17, but uh, give you a better understanding of this passage, but, but the important thing is, 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 is what Jesus says here. Verse 17, when Jesus heard it, He said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And then notice what He says. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners, to repentance. He's talking about salvation. He's talking about an eternal destiny. He's talking about everlasting life. Yes, God is, 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 is powerful to heal, and he does. But, you know, we've, we've gotten so uh, programmed in a way, you know, to the fact that, well, you know, God wants to heal just heal bodies and all. Yeah, well, he does, and he still does. But his desire, more than anything else, is to heal the heart, to heal us from the sickness of sin, 
And as we see now in the last two verses of our text, verses 13 and 14, the argument presented by Peter could not be refuted by the council. The argument that Peter gave them could not be questioned or refuted by the council. Let's close with this. And we're going to close with this, but begin here next time. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled. And they realized that they had been with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. In other words, the council was trapped. They couldn't deny the miracle because the healed man was standing right in front of them. You know that 800-pound gorilla? The healed man was standing right in front of them. They couldn't explain how these fishermen, uneducated and untrained men, could perform such a mighty work. I mean, these guys hadn't even been to seminary. See, that's the problem today. Now, there are some good seminaries. But too often we say, well, you know, where, where did you go to school? Where did you, where did you learn? These guys were untrained. doesn't mean that they were ignorant. It just means that they were untrained. In, they didn't go to seminary. They didn't go to the best schools. They were fishermen. What did these guys have going for them? You see, that's really the question here. Let me tell you what it was. They had one essential quality. This is something you've got to take home with you today. They had one essential quality for ministry, which the council did recognize. And it's there at the end of verse 13. They realized that they had been with Jesus. That is the essential quality for ministry, that you be with Jesus. They had been with Jesus. You see, the the Sanhedrin thought that they had solved the Jesus problem when they crucified Him, but instead, the problem got worse. Peter and John were like their master. You see, this is what happens when you are with Jesus. You become like Him. What an effect there was in spending time with Jesus. The same goes for today. Those who have been with Jesus are supernaturally bold. I'd say naturally bold. You could say naturally bold, but really supernaturally bold. And when you are a servant of an all-powerful and an all-knowing God, what do you fear from the courts of men? There's nothing to fear when we know Jesus. There's nothing to fear when we have spent time with Jesus. There's nothing to worry about because we've been with Jesus. Does the world recognize that you have been with Jesus? But who is it that can be with Jesus? What about ordinary people? What about us here today? This, you know, for this, God uses ordinary people. He uses empty vessels. Are you an empty vessel today? What I mean by that is, have you emptied yourself of yourself? Have you emptied yourself of pride and of selfishness and of all those things that hinder us from having that good and perfect time with Jesus, that good devotional time, that good sweet communion that we can have with the Lord? Have we, emptied of our, have we emptied ourselves of ourselves so that we might be filled with all of the goodness of Christ? Have we done that? 
Because we're spending time with the Lord. We're spending time in His Word. We're spending time in prayer. We're spending time just loving Him and Him loving us. And you know what? Something comes out of that. Even when we face persecution, we can stand stronger. Why? Because we've been with Jesus. We've been with Jesus. And it is God's desire that the world sees His power and His glory through us. Paul said it best in 1 Corinthians 1, verses 27 through 29, and I close with this. He says, But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen, and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in His presence. No flesh should glory in His presence. And so God chooses us. He chooses the foolish things, the weak things, the base things, so that His glory will shine even brighter. But we have to empty ourselves. Peter and John had learned the importance of emptying themselves so that Christ would be magnified and glorified. Every time they open their mouth in front of these opposers, in front of these Sadducees who did not believe in the resurrection, they were filled with the Spirit. And what was recognized was not degrees on a wall, not the clothes that they wore, not the chariots that they drove, with the hood ornaments and all. What was recognized was that they had been with Jesus. Have you been with Jesus? Let's pray.